What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A close-run election, widespread claims of vote rigging, protests and court challenges. Historically, tales of disputed polls in Africa often end with strongman incumbents staying in power. In Malawi, though, a more hopeful story is playing out. And there seems to be an endless supply of writers wanting to dish the dirt on President Donald Trump or to lavish praise on him. All those books are finding plenty of readers, but the sales and reviews differ depending on their political bent. First up, though. Today, Hong Kong woke up to life under a sweeping new national security law. It was passed yesterday by mainland China, which released the text only after rubber stamping the new rules. Despite the new threat of a potential life sentence in jail, demonstrators gathered to protest against the legislation, although not nearly as many as hit the streets last year. Probably in the future, we may never see a million people on the street again, not because we are satisfied with the government, uh, but just because we are now uh, living in fear. Police fired tear gas on a group that had gathered, and dozens were arrested. It's no coincidence that the law went into effect on the anniversary of Hong Kong's handover from Britain to China in 1997. Back then, China promised a transitional 50-year period preserving Hong Kong's way of life and political freedoms, an arrangement known as One Country, Two Systems. The legislation will not undermine One Country, Two Systems and Hong Kong's high degree of autonomy. Yesterday, Hong Kong's leader, Carrie Lam, sent a recorded message to the UN's Human Rights Council about the new law. She said it was only necessary because opposition had become violent. During this period, groups advocating Hong Kong independence and self-determination incited protesters, very often radicalized young people, to desecrate and burn the national flag, vandalize the national emblem, and storm the central government's office in Hong Kong. But the law is a culmination in a series of changes that have made the territory less free. It's already begun to transform Hong Kong's internal politics and international relations. Until this law was promulgated late last night, very few people, if any, in Hong Kong really knew what was in it. And not even the chief executive seemed to know more than the broad outlines. Dominic Ziegler writes Banyan, the Economist's column on Asian affairs, and is based in Hong Kong. When it became clear what uh, those outlines really were, a lot of Hong Kong people were shocked. This is a very draconian law one that fundamentally alters the way this territory is going to be administered in future. So what exactly is in the law? The law outlaws four crimes, secession, subversion, terrorism, and foreign collusion. But it does so in ways that that are so vague and so sweeping. 
with such swinging punishments, including uh, life sentences in prison, that it's, it's very hard to know where you might breach the law. And what's the point of it? The point of this law is to stop the kinds of protests that roiled Hong Kong last year. It's intended to do away with foreign subversion, which China sees around every corner in Hong Kong. The idea that the US and its friends really put last year's protesters uh, up to it, uh, when in fact they haven't actually produced any such evidence. But now the law, in theory, could take in almost anybody into the dragnet. It marks a profound breach with how Hong Kong has operated before and with the guarantees that China made for Hong Kong at the time of the handover in 1997. Now, it's been a fundamental principle until now that Hong Kong's law has been administered in Hong Kong by Hong Kong authorities and the courts. That is now no longer the case. The extension of that kind of power is what set people off in Hong Kong to begin with. Why would the mainland's response be to turn the screws harder rather than looser? For Beijing, uh, last year's protests uh, represented um, a challenge to the Communist Party's rule and to its proxy government in Hong Kong. So the central government has been determined that the kind of challenge that happened last year shall never happen again. Uh, And that's why this law carries with it such swinging sentences too. Uh, Now, the law makes clear that most cases will be tried in Hong Kong by Hong Kong courts, although with some kind of oversight and direction from mainland authorities. But for severe cases or cases that that Hong Kong is not able to deal with itself, that's where a new mainland authority, an office for safeguarding national security, steps in. And mainly, as far as one can tell from uh, the, the published law, this has to do with cases that in Beijing's eyes involve foreign collusion. And so what effect do you think that will have then on, on the, the people who have been protesting in Hong Kong? The immediate effect, uh, and we're already feeling it, is to cast a chill over Hong Kong civil and political life. We've seen leading activists disbanding parties and organisations. We've seen uh, restaurants that previously supported the anti-establishment movement hurriedly tearing down uh, posters and the like. The effect is going to be to stifle political speech. It may be in breach of the law to criticise it, for instance. It uh, certainly disqualifies you from uh, running for any elected office, Um, if you criticise the law or if you call for autonomy that Hong Kong has not currently got. So from this point of view, already uh, China's aim is having some effect. And from its point of view, it's um, already um, starting to show some success. And what about outside Hong Kong? What's the international response been to this law? The US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, has already said that the US will no longer view Hong Kong as a separate autonomous territory of China. Uh, In other words, it will apply the same uh, rules, laws and tariffs to Hong Kong as it does to China. I think the more significant move will be taken by Britain, Hong Kong's uh, former overlord. Now, what the government has said so far is that it will look kindly on the nearly three million Hong Kongers who possess what hitherto has been a fairly worthless piece of paper called a BNO passport. Um, It looks pretty clear that the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, will announce guarantees for holders of this type of passport. And they could include, in effect, a path 
to British citizenship. One of the big questions about the unrest in Hong Kong all along has been the degree to which international businesses would would up sticks, essentially, if things um, weren't good conditions for doing business. Do you, do you think this puts paid to that? Well, bear in mind that that many international businesses here in Hong Kong found last year's protests highly inconvenient. It shuttered business. Um, it closed for a while uh, access to the to the airport. So there was a lot of rumbling. Business, by and large, uh, has not been in favour of the anti-establishment pro-democratic movement. Um, and many businesses, uh, under pressure from China or not, signed up to the idea of a national security law when it was uh, first mooted. I'm just wondering, though, now how many uh, will have uh, cause for concern or cause to reconsider their earlier enthusiasm for this law. It's so sweeping that they could uh, quite quickly be caught up in its dragnet. For instance, the law uh, outlaws foreign collusion. And as part of that, it also outlaws entities, uh, foreign or Hong Kong, that carry out the wishes of uh, foreign governments imposing sanctions, for instance. So you could very quickly imagine a foreign company applying US-mandated sanctions, for instance, in Hong Kong, uh, and finding itself caught between a rock and a hard place between US demands and Chinese demands. So is this it um, on, on the story that has been developing for so long? Is this the, the effective end of a, a meaningful Hong Kong democracy movement, do you think? Well, it certainly might look like it, and I have a feeling that China will think uh, that it is the end. That's how it speaks in terms of finality. Uh, it calls it a birthday gift uh, for Hong Kong. But what it means is Hong Kong can continue as a stable and prosperous place. What hasn't been addressed are the dissatisfactions, socio-economic and political, that were at the root of last year's protests. I think we're going to hear much less vocal opposition now because this law will have frightened people into silence. But it's not the end of the story. Those grievances, the, the desire for most Hong Kong people to be able to choose who governs them, the growing inequalities uh, in economic terms in this territory between the very rich and the rest, those grievances remain. For how long they remain out of sight and underground, which is where they're heading now, it's not clear. Dominic, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In May 2019, Malawi's incumbent president declared victory after a closely fought election. But immediately, there were complaints that the vote had been rigged. Pro-democracy Malawians staged mass protests, and the country's top judges backed them 
demanding that another election be held. So last week, people headed to the polls again. And this time around, the result was a clear victory for the opposition and for democracy. The election, which was won by the opposition candidate Lazarus Chakwera, and is duly elected as president of the Republic of Malawi, was a huge win for the people of Malawi. John McDermott is The Economist's chief Africa correspondent. It showed that it's possible to hold an election in the COVID era. And it also showed the fruits of more than a year of people power and courageous judicial independence. More than a year. I mean, how did this story start? It started in May 2019, when the now former president, Peter Muturika, was declared to have won despite ample evidence that the papers recording the voting tallies had been tampered with, including the use of lavish amounts of Tipex, a correction fluid. Lashings were found all over those sheets, making it dubious whether he had actually won as many votes as he claimed to have done. And normally in African elections, there would be a fair bit of hand-rigging, but no real change to the, to the eventual outcome. In this case, though, things took a different turn. And that's largely because Malawians took to the streets in peaceful protests organized by civil society. And then the opposition parties who were judged to lose the election they went to the constitutional court of the country to ask for a rerun. So, so this is not just a story of successful popular protest, but, but also of, of a story of success for the judicial system itself. Exactly. The idea of institution building gets a hard rap sometimes. It's slow and tough work. But you've seen in Malawi how important it really is. In February, the Constitutional Court said that there were sufficient flaws in the election of May 2019 that there needed to be a rerun. And the judges did this against quite long odds. There was attempts to bribe them. And it was only the second case in all of Africa where a court decided to nullify the election results. So it's not an easy thing to do to face down a powerful executive but they did so, and they paved the way for Mr. Chakwera's victory last week. Was there no pressure then from uh, international groups, from observers and the like? After the May 2019 election, which was flawed, European observers did what they often do, which is to say, well, there were some problems, but largely it was peaceful and credible. But unlike what normally happens, which is that election observers get the next plane out and incumbent politicians begin to once again enjoy the spoils of power, Malawians said, no, we're not going to take this, and went to the streets and then ultimately to the courts to bring fairness back to the democratic system. And so what about the, the now incoming president? Tell me about him. Lazarus Chakwera, an unusual name uh, coming from the biblical story. As his family tale goes, he had two brothers who died in infancy and his father named him Lazarus as he would be the one who would rise from the dead. And that um, gives you a bit of a sense of him and Malawi, which is an incredibly religious country, one of the most religious on the continent. He is a pastor, a theologian, part of the Pentecostal Assemblies of God Church. 
And he took over, he went from the cloth to the political campaigning in 2013, taking over the Malawi Congress Party, which was the party of Hastings Banda, the dictator who ran the country for most of the post-independence period up until the mid-1990s. And partly because he's a religious man and religious figures are incredibly well regarded in Malawi, he was seen as something of an antidote to the venal and corrupt Mutarika regime. And so what do you think his election means for Malawi? Like what kind of country is he inheriting and, and, and running? Malawi is one of the poorest countries in the world. It requires foreign aid for many of its social programs. So it's a tough inheritance. It's made doubly tough by the high expectations that have been built over the past year from all of these successful pro-democracy moves. He has said that he will be less corrupt than his predecessor, and he said that he will create a million jobs, no small feat in a population of 18 million people, and that he will roll out a um, kind of universal fertilizer subsidy scheme, which is a big deal in a largely uh, agrarian economy. All of that raises the question of whether he can deliver in a kind of era whereby COVID is, is making a poor country even poorer. I think the key thing will be whether he can balance his good intentions while also encouraging a bit of patience in what is now quite an impatient country for change. So you say this was just the second African election to have been annulled and, and the first to result in the opposition candidate actually winning in the end. Is this just an anomaly to your mind or, or do you see a, a wider trend here? I think it has broader relevance. Until the early 1990s, African democracy was in a pretty sorry state. Most countries had had experience of coups or one-party states. And slowly from the 1990s onwards, you saw many more countries holding elections. The problem has been that these elections have been largely flawed. And one reason for that is that the institutions that are supposed to make it harder for uh, incumbent leaders to cravenly hold on to power have been quite weak. And what the Malawi case shows is that if you have stronger institutions like civil society like good judges, like strong parliaments, it raises the costs for an incumbent to hold on to power. So he has to do, and it's usually a he, he has to do more and more in order to stay in office. And sometimes that just is too much, whether for his reputation or whether he just does not have the support of the people around him. And that's ultimately what happened to Peter Mutarika. And that has paved the way for the, for the new guy, Mr. Chakwera. John, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Yesterday, a judge in New York temporarily blocked the publication of a new memoir by Mary L. Trump, President Donald Trump's niece. The court is trying to establish whether Ms. Trump broke a confidentiality agreement over her grandfather's contentious estate. It's not the first Trump book to end up in the courts. Ten days before, it was a memoir by former National Security Advisor John Bolton that was the subject of a lawsuit. Mr. Trump claimed it revealed classified information, but a court ruled that it was too late to be pulled. There are almost certain to be more books and more lawsuits from those near to the White House. That is, as long as readers keep buying them. 
Bolton is only the latest in a long series of people who have worked with Donald Trump to have published books. James Tozer is a data journalist at The Economist. James Comey, the former director of the FBI, uh, has published a quite critical book about him. So has Andrew McCabe, who was a former deputy director of the FBI. Omarosa Newman, a former aide. And, uh, of course, a couple of, of well-respected veteran journalists have profiled Mr. Trump and his administration, notably Bob Woodward, famous for his reporting on the Watergate affair, and Michael Wolff. And are there any consistent themes among all of them? One thing that's consistent throughout all of those books is a depiction of the president as largely erratic in his decision-making, quite uninformed, unwilling to devote a lot of time to, to detail or to, to reading briefings in depth, and also a certain amount of vanity and uh, obsession with his own ratings and re-election chances. So do these books sell well, given that they're saying similar things? Yes, absolutely. So what we've done is is look at the most prominent books that are critical of Donald Trump and his presidency based on how many times they've been rated on, on Amazon. And then we asked NPD BookScan, which is a company that analyzes book sales in the US, to look at how many hardback copies of those books were sold. And we found that four of the 10 most popular books that are critical of Donald Trump have sold more than half a million copies in hardback alone in, in the US which are Mr. Wolf's book, Bob Woodward's book, James Comey's book, and Hillary Clinton's election memoir, which sticks the boot into Donald Trump as well, that all of those have sold very well. And what about on the other side? What about uh, pro-Trump books, as it were? So there we see quite a different story. There's no shortage of pro-Trump books. They've been churned out frequently by members of the conservative media, so radio hosts and TV hosts, such as Mark Levin and Tucker Carlson and Janine Pirro and so on. Mr. Trump advertises those books heavily on, on Twitter, and certainly among the people who do buy those books, they're very popular. The average rating we found for the 10 most prominent pro-Trump books on Amazon was 4.75 out of 5, which is higher than for the Trump bashes, which is about 4.5. But there's not been a, a pro-Trump book published during his presidency that has sold more than half a million hardback copies so all, all the really the best sellers in the in the sort of American politics category in the last four years have really been books critical of Trump rather than those that that sort of fawn over him. But if the country is so close to divided right down the middle on this, why do you suppose there's that disparity in book sales? So there are a couple of things. I think one thing is just the nature of the subject matter, airing salacious gossip about an administration. That material is always going to be, I think, more interesting than sort of ranting about the political opposition. But I think another thing as well is just about the market size. We've looked at polling on American reading habits, and we found that people who identify as Democrats read about 13 books a year on average, and it's it's more like 10 for Republicans. And then the other side of it is there are more people who identify as Democrats than Republicans in America anyway. You've got more people that you're, that you're selling to and, and people who are more likely to read the books in the first place. James, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 